0: We're continuing to work through the book of Acts Going verse by verse by verse, chapter by chapter uh, If you're using one of the chair Bibles located in front of you It's going to be on page 926 So you don't even need to look at the table of contents You're welcome 926 Central to the story this morning that we find in the book of Acts is the idea of Jesus being the Christ. Now this is a common word, but I think it is oftentimes a very misunderstood word. So for example, it's not a word that you yell when you hit your finger with your hammer in anger, nor is it Jesus' last name. In fact, it's an untranslated Greek word where we just took English letters and put them with a Greek word, Christos, and made Christ, which is itself the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, where we took English letters to a Hebrew word and got the word Messiah. So if you ever hear someone talk about Messiah and Christ, they're actually talking about the exact same thing, whether they know it or not. And both of them, when you actually translate them, instead of just change the letters around, they mean anointed one. So whenever you hear the word Christ, or you ever hear the word Messiah, think anointed one. Now some of you might already be thinking, okay, you've already lost me, because why are we talking about pouring things on other people? And so what's helpful for us is to look in the Bible where someone was actually anointed with oil to help us understand what it means that someone is an anointed one. And one of the best examples of this is the story of King David. Stories found in 1 Samuel chapter 16 if you want to read the whole thing later, but I'll give you the highlights this morning. So in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16, we read this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So the very first king of Israel was Saul. And he turned away from the Lord. And so the Lord rejected him as king. And so he says to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So God says to Samuel, I'm going to choose the next king, so go to the house of Jesse who lives in Bethlehem. Now it's actually a really great story because it is a wonderful picture of how superficial we are because Samuel goes through all of Jesse's kids and just by looking at him, he's like, oh yeah, that guy looks like a king. That guy, oh, he's got, he's got a face for kingness. And God keeps saying, no, no, no. And it's a wonderful story about the idolatry of image that exists in our own hearts. But let me get to the end of the story that are, is going to help us understand what it means that Jesus is the anointed one. So in verse 12, they've run out of sons. And Samuel says, do you have any more? And Jesse, I don't know if he like forgot David. You know, sometimes Darcy and I joke that, oh wait, we do have three kids. Where's Adam? Um, I don't know what it was, but they're like, oh yeah, we got David, but he's out with the sheep. And so in verse 12 we read, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Saying, This is my next king. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to to Ramah. So how does this story help us? Number one, the anointing demonstrated who was God's pick. Okay, so everyone can see. Notice he does it in the presence of everybody there. And so Samuel, when he dumps this oil on David's head, it's a physical thing that demonstrates God's selection, God's choice. But it's not just the title of king. King is also a job. And so the second thing that we need to see is that when God anoints you, gives you a title, gives you a job description, he gives you a job along with it. So David was not just the title of king, he also had the job of the king to do. And so in our understanding of what it means to be anointed, we see two aspects. One, this is God's person. And then secondly, that this is God's person for God's work. And so this morning, as we read in the book of Acts, we're going to see our big idea, as you see in your bulletin there. We're going to look at who Jesus is as Christ and the jobs that God gave him to do as Christ. So our big idea, as Christ, we worship Jesus as Savior and serve him as King. So let's first look at Jesus as the Savior. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 17. Now when they, that is Paul, Silas, and the missionary team, had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ.'" So Paul comes into the city of Thessalonica and as was his custom as was his pattern that we have seen throughout the book of Acts if there is a community of Jews he goes there first. And what does he do when he's there? It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He saw what was in common with Christians and Jews, himself being a Jew, and saying we share the Old Testament in common, we share a Bible, and so I'm going to use logic and reason and to show you in this book that, well, we'll get there. (laughs) But one thing I think we need to see is using our Bibles... To explain the story of Jesus. I think one of the biggest things that stops us from talking about Jesus is a fear of public speaking. Is a fear of having to come up with words in an order that's good. But what does Paul do? He uses God's word to show people the truth that's in there. And I think that is something that we forget that God has given all the words we need in this book are you using this book do you know this book to where you can share the good news that's in it because it's already there you don't have to make it up but let's look at what he was reasoning about Because again, it's more than just sharing some nice ideas. Some opinions on how to have a nice life. In verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he's reading through scripture with them. He's explaining to them <clears throat> this truth that the Christ had to die and rise again and that Jesus was that Christ what's helpful to this what's helpful to us in this is that Paul is following the pattern of Jesus himself so in the book of Luke chapter 24 we read this, and he said to them, This is Jesus speaking to two disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in both places, Jesus and Paul. Talk about how it was necessary for the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one chosen by God, it was to suffer. When we think of parts of what we call the Old Testament that talk about the Christ suffering, I think one of the best places is Isaiah 53. Because we have to answer this question. Why would they argue about the Christ suffering? Why was that such a hard thing to believe that it needed to be proven, that it was central to this message? So let me read you an excerpt from Isaiah 53, verses four to six. Surely he, that's referring to the Messiah, the Christ, has borne our griefs, And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. This idea of suffering. Straight out of the book of Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why was it so important for Paul to talk about the Christ having to suffer? Because as we read in Isaiah 53, the suffering is because of The sins of humanity. Look again, if you're following along. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ needed to suffer because of our sin. And so as we understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the first part of that, the first aspect of that from the text is that as the Christ, he is the Savior who suffers and dies for sin. And not only in a way that just demonstrates he was nice to us, but in a way that brings healing. And healing from sin is forgiveness of those sins. That every sin was laid on the Christ. And every sin was healed through the suffering and death of Christ. And so to say that Jesus is this Christ is to say that Jesus is the Savior from sin. He's the Savior of sinful people. But don't miss the assumption that the writer in Isaiah makes and that Paul would have made here that when we say the Christ is the Savior of sinful people, we might as well just say the Savior of people. (laughs) Because if you are a person, you need saving. You have iniquity. You have transgressions. You have sin in your life. Isaiah assumes that every person is in need of saving from their sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So again, as we think of how does Jesus being the Christ change my life, we have to start with Jesus is my Savior. He is the one and the only one who can save from our sins. Who can save us from the sin that separates every one of us from God. And Paul's point is, and maybe this is where they got stuck in the debate, was, okay, yes, we we accept that the Messiah was the Savior of simple people, But then Paul goes to the next step and says, guess what? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is that Savior. He is the one who fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah. And we get a glimpse of the response in verse 4 to this news. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. People believed Paul's message. Some of the people from the Jewish community did. When it says devout Greeks, these were Gentile people, non-Jews, who who probably attended services but were not fully recognized as Jews. And then in very Luke fashion, not a few of the leading women of the city. Meaning a lot. I don't know why Luke does that. I'm going to ask that. When I get to heaven, that's going to be my questions. <laughs> what do you mean not a few? Who writes like that? Um, But these would be women in, in high society. These would be probably from the aristocracy of that city. And what do they do? They believe that Jesus is the promised Savior. That he is the one who can heal them, who can heal their hearts from the sin that is killing them. And that he is the one who suffered and died. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so when you think about what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ to me? Well, if if you've never believed in Jesus, it means that that Jesus is offering you this healing from sin today. That it is through faith in Jesus that you can be healed. That it's through his death and resurrection that you can be forgiven. But I think for those of us who who have placed our trust in Christ, I think sometimes we forget our need for a Savior or that we ever needed one in the first place. Maybe because we've polished Our lives in a few places that we forget that at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we needed to be saved. And we cannot forget that. When we forget that we needed a Savior, then we are in big trouble. And it's an everyday decision to remember that I needed a Savior and Jesus is that Savior. And I can be saved by his grace, through faith in his death and resurrection. So first of all, again, we understand Christ as referring to Jesus as our Savior. But secondly, we understand that when we call Jesus Christ, that he's not only making a claim, or we are not making the claim that he is Savior, but also we are making the claim that he is king. So let's look at the second half of the story, starting in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them... That's referring to Paul and Silas. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. So while we read in verse 4 that some of the Jews in that community believed in general and in majority, many of them didn't. And many of them, probably in reference to the leaders here, became jealous that people were converting to Christianity. And so they find a bunch of wicked guys. I love this wicked men of the rabble. Okay. These guys are the guys that they found in the market who, when they said, Hey, we're going to have a riot, they're like, Oh, yeah, let me get my stuff. They already had their riot stuff, you know, probably things to burn and pillage and all those things. This is referring to thugs and wicked men who just want to brawl and don't really care what the reason is. They just know other people are mad and then that means they can flip over cars and burn couches. So this wonderful group of wonderful people forms a mob, set the city in an uproar. So this has now spread to the entire city and the city is in chaos. And they go to the house of a guy named Jason because they think and maybe this was true, but they just weren't home, that Paul and Silas had been staying with Jason. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, they take Jason and some of the brothers, referring to believers, and they take them before the city authorities. Now imagine you're the city authorities. A riot has just started in your little city, And again, this is under the larger Roman government, and the larger Roman government didn't like chaos in its cities. So if you can't handle this, you're probably going to end up dead. So they need to handle this and calm it down. And so the Jews who started this riot make a claim. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Now, there's a great sense of irony here in that we just learned that they were the ones causing the riot, but they're blaming all of the problems on Jason and these other believers. But what I think part of what we need to see here is that when the message of Jesus confronts culture there will be conflict in some shape or form. And here they describe the Christians as men who have turned the world upside down. And why have they done that? How have they done that? Look at the rest of the charge. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. So here's how they're turning the world upside down. They claim there's another king besides Caesar, and that guy's name is Jesus. Now, if you want to cause trouble back in the ancient world, start a riot and be a traitor against a king. They don't like that. And so this claim of another king is a definite way, it's a proven way to cause trouble. Because you don't want to rebel against Caesar. What's even further interesting is that in Luke 23, the same thing was said about Jesus. To Jesus. Let me read Luke 23 verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. So again, a claim to causing trouble in the country and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now again, it's interesting to see these parallels that just as the people who put Jesus to death did so by saying he's claiming to be king, The same thing is those who oppose Paul here in Acts 17. The way to make the government officials mad at the Christians is saying they're putting forward another king against Caesar. Now what's interesting is there's no mention of suffering and dying for the sins of sinful people. But that probably wouldn't get a rise out of the civil authorities. But we have to ask ourselves, because earlier, Paul was saying the Christ needed to suffer and die for sin, and again, it's sort of easy to trace that back to Isaiah 53. Where did they get this claim that Jesus was a king in being the Christ? Well, another common text to talk about the Christ or the Messiah is Psalm 2. Let me read to you from Psalm chapter 2. This is the first six verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in one sense, this charge against the believers that Jesus is a king is totally right. Another aspect, in addition to being Savior, the Christ was viewed as God's chosen king. Now, when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus has to help his followers understand how he was a king, and that he wasn't interested in a measly country to be king over because he is king of the universe, and that his kingdom looks differently than an earthly kingdom does. And that's one of the messages of the Gospels is that Jesus is not a king in the way you're used to kings. He doesn't need power, political power, and he's not just satisfied with one country because he's the king of the world. But what we need to see here is that in one sense the charge is correct in that to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand him as king. So what does that mean that Jesus is king? What does that mean to my life today that Jesus is to be king in my life if I am a follower of Jesus? The first thing is as I've thought about this and how I would apply it to my own life is that there's a sense in which Jesus is king means he is the ultimate Authority in my life. This is a time when we read our Bibles when we have to take a time machine to back then because it's so different from our lives today. Don't think of Jesus like a president that gets elected, (laughs) think of him as a king with no checks and balances. Don't think our system of government. Think back then. And the idea back then was if a king told you to do something, you did it. He had the authority to tell you what to do. He didn't come up for re-election every couple years. He didn't have to, you know, find the donors to fund his campaign and keep them happy. He didn't even have to have a Twitter account back then. But when the king spoke, you listened because he was the ultimate authority. And so Jesus is not our elected president, he's my king. And so there's an obedience aspect to understanding Jesus as Christ that where Jesus speaks, I obey. That when the God of all creation says he is my king, then every aspect of my life must be lived in obedience to him because he is the ultimate authority. So Jesus is my king when I'm working. Jesus is my king at the grocery store. Jesus is the king when I'm with my family at home. Jesus is the king in how I handle my finances and my time and my resources. Jesus is the king in how I live every day, every moment of my life. We don't get to be king. Jesus is king. Now, Another aspect of Jesus being king in my life, in addition to being the authority in my life, one of the other things that kings did back then is that they acted as judges. So we'll see this at the end of the book of Acts. Paul says, As a Roman citizen, I get to share my case in front of Caesar. And so that's something that kings did back then, they held court. They made decisions on legal matters. Again, don't think of our current system where there's an executive branch and a judicial branch and a legislative branch. The king is every branch back then. And so, a part of Jesus being king is that Jesus is my judge, Jesus will evaluate everything I do, He is the one that holds the standard. Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is from chapter 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why? It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Ultimately, we are accountable to Jesus as our judge. If he is our king, then he is also our judge. He is the one who decides if I have done well and am a good and faithful servant. That we're called to live to His standard of what is good and right. So to conclude this morning, again, I want to bring us back to these two ideas. That as the Christ... Jesus is our Savior and our King. That every day we remember that Jesus is our Savior and that He died and took the punishment we deserve. And that forgiveness is only available through Him. And again, that every day we humbly remember that I am in need of a Savior from the first day till the last. But we also understand that as Christ, Jesus is king. And so he has authority over every part of our life. Every aspect of your life, every decision that you make, Jesus is king. And as a part of that, he is our judge. And we will have to answer to him. We're responsible to him for what we do. And so as we use the word Christ, as it is used as Jesus' last name (laughs) by people who don't know, when we really understand what that word means, it will transform our lives because it is a reminder every day, every time we see it, in every song we sing, we remember that we have a Savior who was wounded for our transgressions, And we have a king who rules every aspect of my life and every aspect of this universe. And so our big idea this morning, as Christ, we worship Jesus as Savior and we serve him as king. Let's pray. God, help us never to forget that we are sinners in need of saving from that sin, that through Jesus you made a way for our transgressions to be forgiven and healed. And that you offer us that forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And God, that we would take seriously your call of obedience to Christ, that we would obey him in every aspect of, in every decision of our lives, as our king, as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We pray this in his great name. Amen.